Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. So last week, last Sunday, the world uh, celebrated Halloween on October 31st. It's a celebration of darkness. But uh, a lot of people don't realize that October 31st is an important date in the church because that formally was the launch of the Reformation, that it was the 504th year anniversary from when Martin Luther had pinned his 95 thesis to the door in Wittenberg. We were there on the 500-year anniversary. We were at that church. We were in front of those doors. Original doors aren't there anymore, but there's a bronze replica of them that still stand there. And that's where he pinned his 95 thesis, 95 things that he saw wrong with the Catholic Church as what Scripture would reveal. Now, Luther lived in a world dominated by the fear of death, and that fear was only increased by the Catholic teaching that through your works we can appease a vengeful God, that through our good works that we can appease a God who is angry, a God who is opposed to sin. And this teaching only compounded the problem. And he wrote in his own words, under the papacy, we were told to toil until the feeling of guilt left us. So under the papal authority of the church, they were told to continue to work, continue to work at your good deeds, and until the guilt will leave you. The problem was the guilt never left. That the harder Martin Luther tried to get right with God on his own righteousness the more guilty he felt and the more hopeless he felt. In fact, he entered into multiple periods of depression in which he began to ask the question, why is the gospel good news? Well, I'm going through all of this and I can't get this feeling of guilt lifted from my life. Why is the gospel even good news? Now, some of you may be in the position of Martin Luther. Maybe you had a tremendous moral failure and you've been trying to get right with God or maybe you've never come to Christ in faith and you were raised in a denomination that taught you that holiness is the way to get acceptable to God. And I run into people all the time that are in this position that they somehow feel that they can obtain a righteousness where a righteous God would put his endorsement and his amen on their lives. And what you find is people trying over and over and over again. That no matter how high, they're like a hamster on a hamster wheel. They're trying like Martin Luther and they're going faster and faster and faster trying to get right with God. And then they end up in this sense of hopelessness and this sense of despair because they understand that there's no way they could be good enough. There's no way that they could be good enough. And a long story short, in Martin Luther's life in Romans chapter 1, he was reading in verse 16 and 17, he came to the understanding 
that a person isn't made right by their obedience to the law and the commands of God, but they're made right through faith, that the righteous will live from faith to faith, as Romans 1 says. And he came into this understanding and a heartfelt response towards the grace of God that it was only in his grace. And when this encounter took place in his life, he said and wrote these words, then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. And when I read that, I thought that was my life. I was so guilty before the Lord and, and I knew I couldn't get right before God. But when the Lord stepped into my life and showered me with grace and salvation, the response being faith, that there was this cleansing that took place and I felt like I was walking through the doors of paradise. And anyone who's come into a saving relationship with Christ understands that feeling. But the question now arises, what of the law? Where does the law stand? I mean, if, if Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by grace through faith, and this not of ourselves, not by works, so no man can boast, where does the law of God fit? I mean, after all, in Romans 6, verse 14, it says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So is there even a place in the believer's life? Because here's my concern that the church that is saved under grace and understands the grace of God, that they feel like the commands of God take a back seat now and that the law of God, as we read in the Old Testament, has no more place in the life of a believer. And what it's led to is disgraceful living. What it's led to was a cheapening of the grace of God. I mean, people today that are in a church have no conscience when it comes to same-sex relationships and some of the moral issues that we're dealing with out in our culture. And you're wondering, how could they be attending a church, hearing the word of God, and yet living that way? And so, yes, we are saved by grace. But is there a place for the law of God as you and I know it? And I think the first place to start would be a biblical definition of law. That when we're talking about law in the New Testament, what are we talking about when we see those words law in the New Testament? Well, it comes from the Greek word nomos, and when it's used with the article the, it is speaking of the first nine times out of ten, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law. The Hebrew for that would be Torah, Torah. And when we talk about Torah, some people think just law, you know, gosh, this is, this is God with a baseball bat just waiting to pound sinners. And really the true meaning of Torah would be instruction. God gave his commands as a blessing, not a burden. That when we understand 
what God's intentions, what his heart is towards us, then it's a game changer. When we look at the Old Testament, the first five books, and we see that word Torah, or we see the word Torah written out, somebody use it maybe, maybe you saw a video with that, that it really means instruction. God is instructing his people. God is instructing his people. There's 613 commands in the law, the first five books of the Bible that the Jewish people try to hold to, try to hold to that standard, and they try and live by that standard, and they find themselves falling short. But nevertheless, the law is an important part of their life, and I think the law should be an important part of our life. Now, when we look at the, the Old Testament, we look at Genesis through Deuteronomy, and we look at these 613 laws that the Jews have determined to live by, then I think they need to be cut into divisions. Now, there's no perfect way of doing this, but John Calvin, who was another father figure in the Reformation, he broke the laws down into three categories. Now, like I said, it's not perfect, but it's a beginning and it's helpful. So he broke down moral laws. He said they fall into moral laws, Civil laws, ceremonial laws. The moral laws are dealing with like the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, things like that. The civil laws are generally dealing with those societal relationships, social justice. What happens if your ox escapes and it kills another ox? Who pays the price for that? And then there are the ceremonial laws, which are the laws that have to do with the worship, where the blood sacrifices take place, the priesthood set up, the tabernacle ministry, and all of that, they're ceremonial laws. And so again, it's not perfect, but it helps you when you're looking at trying to figure out, well, what do we apply in our lives today? I mean, do we really stone children when they misbehave? Because that's in the civil laws of the Old Testament. Now, some of you parents are saying, I wish we could do that, but that was given to Israel. You got to understand when they were delivered that God was making them into a holy nation. You really don't find any kid being stoned there in the Old Testament for rebelling against his parents. So, so which laws do we hold to and which don't we? And so I found that helpful that if we divide them into the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, and the moral laws, then that is helpful into how do I apply God's word to me today. Now, what was God's intention? That's another important question I think that needs to be answered. First of all, when we're looking at nomos in the New Testament, the law, we're looking at generally nine times out of ten, the first five books in the Old Testament. But what was God's intention to even give that law? And I've got four primary reasons, and there's many more reasons, but these four primary are helpful if you keep them in mind. One, the law highlights the holiness of God. It reveals the holiness of God. When we look at the first five books and we start to read the first five books of the Old Testament, we begin to understand that God is a God of holiness. That when we look at the flood and what sin brought about at that time and wiping out the entire world, we see that God is a God of holiness. When we look at the sacrificial system, we're seeing that God is a God of holiness in the sense that we can't approach him on our terms, we approach God on his terms. It's also beneficial to understand that God gave the law not just to show 
God's holiness and reveal God's holiness, but also to reveal man's sinfulness. It's to reveal our sinfulness. When you start to read those first five books, and especially when you get into the book of Leviticus, you begin to understand that, man, we are sinful. We are a sinful, sinful people to the core. If God had to set up a system that was temporary, pointing ultimately to the work of Christ on the cross, where we could not approach him unless there was the shedding of blood, that highlights the seriousness of sin. And I think you and I should take that pretty serious in today's world. One of the reasons why the church is fledgling, one of the reasons why the church is not living a holy life is they don't get it as far as the severity of sinfulness. They don't see themselves as sinful as those people, especially now that we've got the world pretty much divided into two camps, right? You've got Democrats, Republicans, vaccinated, unvaccinated. You've got all this division going on, and people have divided themselves into two camps, and generally it's, we're the holy ones, and they're the sinful ones, but what about our own hearts. And so when you read the law of God, you begin to understand that, man, I am sinful to the core. If it requires a bloodshed to even get into the presence of God, then I am a sinful man. The other thing that the law reveals, and this is important, most people don't focus on this, but Israel's uniqueness. It reveals Israel's uniqueness, that they truly are a unique nation. That when you read in Genesis, God births a nation out of Abraham's obedience. And through this nation, especially in Egypt, it flourished, it populated, they grew to over three million people, and God was taking care of his people, and he made a covenant with his people. This is the one nation in the entire world where God birthed out of nothing, made them into something, set a covenant with them, and said, you are going to be a light to the world. You're going to be a light to the world. When we look at Israel, we see how God gave them the law and the prophets, that all the disciples were Jewish background, that the first church was all Jewish. And you begin to think that, man, God had a unique way about Israel, but it all began in the law. It all began in those first five books where you begin to discover that they really are the apple of God's eye and that God was using them in a unique way. The fourth thing I would say concerning the law is that it reveals the faithfulness of Jesus. It reveals Jesus' faithfulness. That when we look at the Old Testament, especially in the law, and we begin to see the sacrificial system, the high priest set up, everything we begin to see that, man, that's taking shape. That's pointing to a Savior. And if he's to fulfill all of those types and shadows, there was going to require a faithfulness. If he was really going to be the ultimate blood sacrifice. When you read Isaiah, even chapter 53, and you look at the suffering servant and the bloody sacrifice that was going to, take place on the cross, you begin to think that, man, Jesus really did fulfill the word of God. He really did fulfill the word of God, and that should cause you and I to break out in praise that we've got a Savior that the Old Testament looked forward to, and Jesus was that faithful servant that stepped in 
and fulfilled that. So that leads us to Matthew chapter 5 now. So we've got a little bit of a definition of the law. We understand a little bit of what God's intention of the law is, and really this should be a whole series one day so that we can dive deeper into what this is all about because the law is so important. So as we move forward now, I want you to see Jesus' validation of the law, and this is important for you and me. Because you and I live under grace right now. We're not under the law. But the question has to be asked, if we live under the law, I mean under grace, and no longer under the law like the Bible says, then the law shouldn't play any part in my life. This is some of the attitude that people have even in the church today. And this, I think, is why they never read the Old Testament. But let's see what Jesus says as we look in chapter 5, look at verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, I touched on this a little bit when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. We covered the Sermon on the Mount in one message, and I touched on this a little bit, but I want you to understand what's important here. When Jesus shows up on the scene, they looked at him as a lawbreaker. They looked at him as somebody who was violating the law of God. And what's ironic about the whole thing is the religious leaders violated 22 of their own laws in the law of God to get Jesus to the cross. They rigged the jury is what they did. And yet Jesus shows up on the scene and he's doing stuff on a Sabbath that they felt was a violation of the law. And Jesus makes it clear at the beginning, wait a minute, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to wipe out the law. I didn't come to replace the law. I came to fulfill the law. And when you begin to see in the law of God those first five books such as the seven feasts, that God implemented in Leviticus 23, that all of those feasts are celebrated by Israel year after year, but they pictured the work of Jesus Christ. And so the first four feasts, the spring feasts, were fulfilled at Jesus' first coming. Now you've got the fall feasts, which Jesus is going to fulfill at his second coming. So you start to see that everything that God set up in the law was to point to the person of Jesus Christ. So he fulfills the ceremonial laws. He definitely fulfilled the moral laws. There was not one law that Jesus could be said to have broken. Regardless of what people think or regardless of what they try and interpret in the scriptures, Jesus was not guilty of breaking any one of those laws. And it was his perfect obedience not just to the law, but to the will of God that qualified him to be a sacrifice on your part. Had Jesus not done that, we would still be lost in our sin. So Jesus says, wait a minute. I didn't come to wipe out the law. And I think for you and I, that's important for us to understand. You mean when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't replace the law? No, he didn't replace the law. In fact, not only did he say I didn't come to abolish it, 
to fulfill it, but he also endorsed the lasting validity of the law. Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. To me, that sounds like the law is here to stay. Let me ask you of this. When do you read where heaven and earth is going to pass away? You do in Revelation 21. He says, I saw, John opens up his vision. He says, I saw the old heavens and the old earth pass away. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I got news for you. The law is here to stay. And that's going to be a good thing as you'll see in just a moment. But what I want to bring to you is the new covenant never invalidated the law or Jesus would have taught it. In Romans 6 passage where he says we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace, you cannot interpret that as tossing the law away and I'm on my way to heaven in free grace. See, that's where people go wrong. Saved by grace and I got my ticket to heaven and there's no challenge to our lives. There's no challenge to the holiness that we're supposed to live, right? And that's just not true. Jesus makes it clear. Now, that's Jesus' validation of the law, but I want you to see Jesus' clarification of the law. And that begins in verse 20. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that statement about the righteousness exceeding the scribes and the law should signal you to something. Wait a minute. The scribes of the law and the Pharisees, they were the holy ones of Jesus' day. They were the people that everyone looked to as the religious example. And that should tell you, wait a minute, if they're the most righteous people, what shot do we have? And the whole issue with that is Jesus was not trying to implement a new law. He was telling us that the righteousness that God requires comes from the heart, not the external obedience. Not that the external obedience isn't important, but the horsepower behind it is the heart. And think about what he's contrasting that with. Think about what Jesus is saying right now. Wait a minute. Their righteousness, they tithe, they do this, they do that, they're always at the synagogues and everything else, and you're going to tell me that our righteousness has to exceed theirs? Yes, because Jesus is not changing the truth that righteousness is required, but he's changing the kind of righteousness and quality, not changing it, but bringing a proper interpretation to it, rather than repeal or do away with the law or challenge its authority or giving a new law or interpret it in a higher key, Jesus restores its original intention. Obedience to God's law begins in the heart. And that's why the other day I threw up Psalm 51 where David fell into that a horrible moral failure with Bathsheba and Uriah. And it says, for I will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it to you. I will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. 
See, Jesus wasn't making any new laws. Jesus was bringing a right interpretation and clarification to the law that existed. Because, see, even though the religious leaders were obeying the law, their heart was far from God. Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley, with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the cccivy.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.